Hello, and thank you for joining us on the Stay Healthy Spokane podcast, aimed at helping you live an active, healthy, and enjoyable life in and around Spokane, Washington. Brought to you by Gordon Physical Therapy. And now, here's your host, Dr. Luke Gordon. Hey everybody, this is Luke Gordon. Thank you for joining me again on another episode of the Stay Healthy Spokane podcast. And uh, today I have another special guest with me. And this is fun for me because I have Dr. Lindsay Donahue back with me again. And she was my first ever guest on the Stay Healthy Spokane podcast. So if you're new to the podcast, make sure you go back to that very first full episode with Dr. Donahue. Um, if you want to learn more about her background and her history and, and what brought her to be a naturopathic physician. But uh, just to give you a quick background, she is, like I said, a naturopath here in Spokane Valley and not too far from the clinic. And uh, the name of her practice is Valley Naturopathic and Acupuncture. Works here with her sister, who is the acupuncturist. And it's good to be here this morning, Luke. Yeah, thanks for coming back. It's my pleasure. I'm excited to have you. This is, uh, we're in the new year here, you know, as we're recording, this is January. This will probably come out in February, but everyone's in that spirit of self-improvement, hopefully, and what can they do to better their lives? So we have a very important topic for them today. Today, we're going to talk about sleep. Sleep, that elusive creature for many people. Yes. <laughs> okay. So overall, so we have a lot, of, um, a lot of information to cover today about sleep, what it is, why it's important, and then as we start to kind of lay the groundwork for why it's so important and what happens, um, unfortunately, when you don't get enough uh, you know, so we're going to, we're going to inform you and then we're going to scare you. And then we're going to give you some advice on how to improve. Is that, is that pretty accurate? <laughs> that sounds about accurate. Yeah. Cause it actually is kind of scary when you start to look at the statistics with sleep. It is. Yeah. So, um, a lot of our knowledge, by the way, just in case you're wondering is coming from a book that we've, uh, that actually Dr. Donahue recommended on the very first podcast. It's called why we sleep and it's by Matthew Walker. So, um, Everything that I mentioned on here, I'll put in the show notes, but if you want to dive into this topic after we've inspired you today, that's the book, Why We Sleep. Um, so it's pretty interesting. So why don't we just dive right in though? So with the overarching topic of why is sleep even important in the first place? Uh, what's what's so good about sleep? Uh, why don't you start with that quote actually? Yeah, actually, yeah. So from the book, I'll take this quote from page, it's chapter six, page 106. Um, so the quote is this, there's an amazing breakthrough. Scientists have discovered a revolutionary new treatment that makes you live longer. It enhances your memory and makes you more creative. It makes you look more attractive. It keeps you slim and lowers food cravings. It protects you from cancer and dementia. It wards off colds and the flu. It lowers your risk of heart attacks and stroke, not to mention diabetes. You'll even feel happier, less depressed and less anxious. Are you interested? Yes. Sign me up. <laughs> yeah. How much do we have to pay for this new scientific discovery? Just some time. So but health benefits of sleep. So sleep is connected to our hormones quite a bit, like cortisol, leptin, ghrelin. So when we don't get enough sleep, you will be hungrier the next day. You're going to be snacky and it's gonna, it doesn't bode well for uh, maintaining a healthy weight. Poor sleep also is linked to heart disease, diabetes, uh, dementias at some time. Like uh, if people who don't get enough sleep, their risk for developing Alzheimer's, I think Parkinson's might actually increase because the brain does clean itself at night using the... Uh, glymphatic system. Thank you, the glymphatic system. Well, interestingly enough, everything we mentioned in that quote from chronic disease to weight loss to your feeling of well-being, um, if you go through the book... These aren't just like people's opinions. These are, I didn't know until I read the book that people researched sleep to this extent. 
Like there's a massive amount of research in this book. There is. And even now we don't quite understand everything about sleep and the researchers are still trying to learn more like REM sleep versus non-REM sleep, the uh, rapid eye movement versus non. And between those two phases of sleep, which kind of dance and interplay throughout the night, non-REM sleep is the first part of the night primarily. And then uh, in the morning, early hours of the morning, we should be in rapid eye movement sleep. The brain waves actually change for that, but we don't quite understand. And I don't think the researchers understand exactly everything that's going on and why, why we even do that. So before we get into those phases of sleep between, you know, like light phase, deep sleep, which is all non-REM and then the REM sleep, which you mentioned, um, do you want to just talk about what dictates your sleep rhythm? Yes. So talking about, you know, the, the rhythm yeah. and then the two things that are, that are kind of working in, in tandem. Yeah. So adrenals, we talk about adrenals a lot in functional medicine. And the adrenals are these two little glands that sit on top of each kidney. Each kidney has one. They're about a walnut size and they secrete stress hormones. So fight or flight. Many Americans are in fight or flight all the time. We're a little bit high strung, a little bit anxious. We have that epinephrine kind of going high and that cortisol, probably a little uh, more jumpy than most older societies who don't have our schedule. Uh, with that cortisol, the cortisol should be higher in the morning, allowing us to be more wakeful, and it should decrease at night, allowing us to fall off and go to sleep. A lot of people with kind of dysfunction of the adrenal and uh, and the stress system, their cortisol will actually be higher at night, which makes it more difficult for them to fall asleep. Some um, some people have suppressed cortisol all throughout the day. Other people will be just a little bit elevated. These aren't disease states that I'm talking about here. This is just functional, usually um, seen on a urinary metabolite test or a salivary cortisol test, which can be run through a specialty labs or even LabCorp. LabCorp has a specialty cortisol saliva test. We usually look at it four different points in time to see what the person's is doing. So we've got the cortisol interplaying with something called adenosine, which is sleep pressure. The sleep pressure should be low um, well, actually, sleep pressure rises until we sleep. Once we sleep, the sleep pressure decreases. Usually, if you're on a normal schedule, a normal human schedule, your sleep pressure, your adenosine will be lowest in the morning with the higher cortisol giving you nice wakefulness. In the evening, you'll have high adenosine that's built up throughout the day, low cortisol, which allows you to drift off for sleep. And then we've got the melatonin also helping sleep. Um, and that we start making melatonin once it gets dark. Okay. So we've got, like you said, the, the hormonal aspect of it, which like the adenosine is your sleep pressure, mm -hmm. which that's an easy one. I think for most people to understand as the day goes by that goes up, yes. it just continually goes up. So it's telling you, Hey, as the day goes by, you're getting closer and closer and closer to wanting to sleep. Correct. And then the other factor that they overlaid in the book quite a bit was, um, was your circadian rhythm as well. Right. Yes. So do you want to just explain how people's rhythm works throughout the day? And So throughout the day, your cortisol. Oh, that's um, the cortisol. Yes, that's the cortisol. Oh, that's the okay. circadian rhythm. Oh, so those are those are hand in hand. Okay. Yes, I didn't pick up that. on that. <laughs> so the cortisol. Okay, gotcha. So basically, but with, with the rhythm, I think a lot of people have heard of their rhythm, right? Yeah. So you're fluctuating. Those hormones are fluctuating during the day. Right. So throughout 24 period of time, we make this kind of cycle. At the beginning of the day, sleep pressure low because we just slept it off, hopefully, and cortisol high, which is part of the circadian rhythm. In the afternoon or late evening, 
the sleep pressure is now high from being awake all day, and the cortisol is now low, allowing you to drift off. Exactly. Okay. And from a graphical perspective, I like the little image they had because the sleep pressure is getting higher and then your wakefulness is getting lower. And as soon as you have that nice big gap between the two, that's when you should be falling asleep. And then you also mentioned melatonin, which basically says as it starts to get darker, this it's basically a signal, correct? Yeah, I think it's a really powerful, beautiful hormone. I think it's considered a hormone. So melatonin is secreted from the pineal gland. And if you secrete enough melatonin, that helps you drop uh, drop off for, to sleep. Melatonin does not keep you asleep, though. However, uh, some people do actually sleep better on a slow-release melatonin. Okay, yeah. And I like how they explained it in the book too. It's kind of like melatonin is um, just this signal that, hey, sleep's coming, sleep's coming. I think they kind of, uh, the visual I kept in my head was like the the train and it's getting closer and closer to the station. And as it gets closer, it gets louder. And so as you're, as it's getting darker and darker, more melatonin is coming out of your brain and it's just saying, hey, we're getting closer. And so then you say in in connection with the adenosine building and then the circadian rhythm and the cortisol falling, you have all of these really nice signals to your brain and body that, hey, it's about time to go to sleep. It's about time to go to sleep. So melatonin, I'm a big fan of melatonin, and it's easily suppressed by blue light. So what is blue light? Blue light is the fluorescent lights that are found in many offices, the LED lights, iPads, iPhones, computers. So In our technological society, we are bombarded by blue light all day, even in the evening with our LED TVs. That is going to shut down and uh, decrease our melatonin, making it harder for a lot of people to sleep. And that's something I think we'll we'll talk about more in depth later on in the episode about um, what are all these factors that are getting in the way of a good night's sleep and what are some ways that we can kind of get around them. Um, The other interesting thing I wanted to kind of mention and... um, maybe let you discuss is this issue or not an issue, the idea that some people are, are have different rhythms than others. And so traditionally we're calling these folks night owls and uh, morning larks is what they call them. I don't know if that's an actual term that anyone knows. I think it is. Night owls and morning larks. Um, so do you want to just explain what those two are? And I guess just maybe give some credibility to the fact that they actually are different people. So my understanding is that the tribal cultures of humanity thousands of years ago, you know, sleeping was dangerous. Nobody was alert. There are predators. There are, you know, maybe other tribes. And so there are two types of uh, people. There are the night owls. And so they'd, they want, they, their bodies wanted them to stay up longer, which was a good idea while the larks, the early birds turned in. And so Instead of having eight hours or nine hours where everyone was asleep, that shifted it to about just four. So it made the tribe less less vulnerable, so to speak. So it is genetic. You might genetically be a night owl, and it might be really hard to go to bed early. And that's just a shift genetically um, in your DNA. Yeah. And unfortunately for night owls, our society is geared towards morning larks. Mm -hmm. So night owls... um, they're creative in the evening. They do, you know, their brains work. It's just a little bit later. Everything's just a little bit delayed. Whereas the morning, uh, the early birds or morning larks, they are tired early. 
want to go to bed and they tend to be up at 5, 6 a.m. ready to start the day. And that's what our society kind of uh, is geared towards. So um, that's, yeah, it's normal. It's okay. Yeah. And I like that point in the book. It's saying, look, Traditionally speaking, a lot of times, if you are a night owl, you're being labeled as lazy. You are. You're saying, well, hey, why can't you get up early? Right. I mean, I get up early. Why can't, I mean, everyone, of course, has their own perspective. I'm a morning person. Why aren't you? And why are you staying up so late? Right. Like, this is stupid. You're staying up late, you know, coloring in a book or probably watching TV, unfortunately. Or actually doing work. Or doing something. Night owls are really productive in the 6, 7, you know, p.m. hour Mark, like dinner time when other people are kind of winding down, that's when their brain's in gear and they're ready to be creative, get their work done. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, usually the office is closed by then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I like the fact that it gave these people like a little bit of credibility. Like, look, if you are a night owl, you are a night owl. You didn't choose it and you can't change it. It's genetic. And the background I thought was really nice saying, well, it makes sense from a survival perspective. And obviously you can't prove that's why it is, but it makes good sense. That's the theory. You know, saying, well, hey, instead of everyone sleeping for eight hours a night, which is the goal, um, and the whole tribe being a little bit more, um, you know, vulnerable for eight hours, mm-hmm. uh, 30 to 40% of people are going to stay awake later and 30 to 40% are going to get up earlier and the rest of them kind of fall in the middle somewhere. So this is great. Yep. It's a win-win. It is a win-win. And then of course, like you said, today's society with work schedules just basically fits to one type of person, essentially the morning person. Typically yeah. business days, what, eight to eight to five. Yeah. And if you got, like I was telling you, you got kids, you got to get them up, get them to school, drive them, do this, doing that. So unless you get bankers hours, right? Maybe that's where that came from. Maybe bankers are night owls. Maybe. I like bankers hours. Yeah. Right. That's I good. Do. <laughs> As we're recording the podcast at like, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Perfect timing. Good. Um, another interesting thing that I think we wanted to mention was um, the teenagers and what happens with their sleep rhythm. So what's up with these teenagers? So, teenagers... They they do they uh, their uh, brains shift and their circadian rhythm is pushed back and they want to stay up until midnight one in the morning they actually have a really hard time falling asleep at that ten p.m. spot uh, hour that's like telling me to tell someone that they should be going to bed at six to seven p.m. that's going to be really hard for them to do. The teenagers, 10 o'clock is really early for their brains. The theory is that, you know, in that period of adolescence is when children should be kind of becoming more independent, you know, kind of cutting the cord to their parents a little bit. And the theory is, is that... uh that's how Mother Nature does it, is Mother Nature says, okay, we're going to keep you safe under mom and dad's watch, but we're going to we're gonna make it so you want to stay up really late. So you've got this period of time without kind of parental supervision to kind of start gently turning you loose. I thought that was very interesting. And then, of course, because of the late uh, bedtime, uh, adolescents want to sleep in and they actually really need their sleep. The 7 a.m. school starts are terrible for learning for an adolescent. Yeah, I thought that was a nice, again, kind of a nice section again to say, look, this is, it actually isn't you being uh, a mischievous teenager right. or being, you know, kind of lazy, wanting yeah. to stay, you know, sleep you, in you bed know, until 10 a.m. Or as a parent, you're like, you're just doing this to irritate me kind of a thing. Like go to bed. You, you're you obviously tired during the day, right? Yeah, you're dragging, you're dragging your butt around all day. Why don't you just go to sleep? And it's like the rhythm has shifted. It's, it actually uh, shifted. Melatonin like- isn't coming. Like you can tell me, you can put, you can tuck me into bed. Like you said, 
I mean, I'll tuck you to bed at six at six p.m. You tuck me in bed at ten p.m. and we'll both just lay there. Right, yeah. right. I know it's it's yeah. kind of funny, but it, it makes sense uh, if you think about the theory. You know, trying to cutting cutting the little birds loose to fly. You know. Yeah. Well, and it was interesting too because, like you mentioned, in high school, a lot of times these they're starting super early. I know. I mean, I remember zero hour. I know we um, our school. I think I had to be there by seven seven thirty a.m. Yeah, and if you're part of like an extracurricular uh, program, like I know the dance team stuff yeah. like that, they're getting to school at like six o'clock in the morning. It's, too early. it's really early. And I mean, you say for and so for a grown adult, we're talking ideal is eight hours of sleep, mm-hmm. and that's hours of sleep. That's not hours in bed. That's if it takes you twenty minutes to fall asleep. You know, you have to factor that in. But for a teen. I don't remember the number, but they're probably looking closer to 10 hours a night is what they I need. I, that, I think it's that, you know, seven to 10, but seven is not enough for a teen Yeah, generally. And most teens are probably getting six mm-hmm. or five. Yeah. And then you talk about the, the psychological, um, just how that runs them down. You're talking anxiety, depression. Um, just yeah, these, depression is yeah. really an anxiety. Yeah. So that was an interesting little section about Again, I think between the teenager rhythm and the night owls and the morning larks is that some of this stuff you don't have control over, but if you can figure, I mean, for some of this people, this might be a huge just tidbit is that if if you actually have always felt like you were a night owl, like maybe you should just try to embrace it. You know, I have a, um, someone who works for me at the clinic and she, she works the morning shift, but she doesn't go to bed till two o'clock in the morning and she's shown up to work at 645. Oh. And I said, well... Maybe you should just embrace the fact that you are a night owl and we should give you the afternoon shift. So well, I don't want to do that because I like getting off at 3.30 or 4. It's like, okay, but you know, you're damaging your health in pretty much every single aspect of your life, you know? Ouch. Just saying. <laughs> very, That's a big deal. Very casually, you know? <laughs> Did you know you're increasing your risk of stroke, heart attack, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's, weight gain, blah, 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 blah. It's like, Okay. Well, that's okay. okay. You People like to get off work. Choices. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Um, so you were mentioning the rhythms. Um, yes. So the phases of sleep. Do you want to just touch on that again and tell people what's happening between non-REM and REM and how right. that works? So non-rapid eye movement sleep, that's generally the first 90 minutes of sleep. The brain has these really deep brain waves. Um, I People generally don't uh, dream, so to speak, during that time. Um, and then... REM, rapid eye movement sleep, will sneak in there. And that uh, the larger sections of REM sleep occur closer to morning. However, about every 90 minutes, there's a cycle um, with the non-rapid eye movement and the rapid eye movement. And they kind of dance and interplay with with the non-rapid eye movement, the deep sleep earlier uh, in the night, and REM is heavier, uh, kind of loaded in closer to the morning. And they believe that this um, kind of interplay between REM and uh, N, NREM, how do you sure. say that? Yeah, non-REM. <laughs> Non-REM um, is to remodel and update our brain circuits um, at night and manage kind of the storage space in our brain, process, process and update our memories. Yeah, that actually got pretty deep in the book. Like here's what happens here, here's what happens here. Um, so I guess people listening, if you want to know specifically what happens in each of those phases, they do know what happens. Um, but basically, yeah, your brain is, is kind of sifting through the day's 
the day's interactions, the day's images, you know, deleting certain things. And there are numerous studies done that demonstrate uh, actual studies on students, usually at colleges, I believe, that show and they have, you know, their control group and then their sleep group and they're, you know, some people don't get enough sleep and some people get a lot of sleep and then they're tested. And the people who get sleep, their recall for examinations improve dramatically. Sleep is necessary to improve your memory. And not only to file, I think, new memories, but to make associations between old memories, which also I think helps your brain get rid of the ones that aren't necessarily important. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I believe that's true. Yeah, all those poor college students, right? Know. You know, they're in. <laughs> and he talks about that um, because college students are notorious for pulling all nighters, and that is very damaging to their health and not only their health, but their own learning experience. Yeah. And one of the interesting ideas, too, is that, you know, you, you lose out on sleep for a couple of days and, you know, you think to yourself, I'll just catch up. You know, I'll sleep extra over the weekend. And, um, I think by and large, that was a fallacy. You don't ever, you don't ever catch up on the sleep you lose. Right. I mean, you might catch up and feel better than if you didn't sleep the extra hours, but you won't regain what you lost pretty much ever. That's, he does talk about that, how you can make up some sleep depth, but you can't, it's not like uh, you can't erase, you can't get that back. Yep. Yep. I guess like on a physical example, it's like, well, I, I injured my leg, but that's okay. Cause I'll just rest a little more couple days, like, well, you still entered it. Like yeah. it's going to take you longer and it's not ever going to be the same. Um, yeah. So that was fascinating to me. So I think, you know, so people do need different amounts of sleep each night. Most people, uh, Matthew Walker, he talks about how most people should shoot for eight hours in bed each night minimum. And if you only sleep seven, that's okay. But at least you're allowing yourself the eight hours of being, of sleep availability. So that's ideal for adults. Um, yeah, it's interesting to me that I feel like with my personal history of having autoimmune issues, like eight eight hours of sleep to me, which is fairly easy for me to get, don't take that against me or hold that against me if you have a hard time sleeping, but it, it's not that, I'm, I've always been a, what I consider a good sleeper. But for me, eight hours of sleep isn't enough. Right, I, don't, I, I understand that. I'm in the same boat. I need probably closer to nine myself. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and at one point in the book, it said, actually, if you get above nine hours of sleep, you're actually more likely to die. I said, okay. But the reality was people who are sleeping nine to 10 hours a night, the reason they're sleeping nine to 10 hours a night is because they have a disease state going on. Correct. So yeah. it's it's not the sleep that's causing them to die. I don't think <laughs> They would that. die faster if they got less sleep, but they're more likely to die if they have a chronic Right. Condition. You know, uh, and I've seen that study, you know, you see it on, like, I don't know what magazine, but they'll say, you know, people who oversleep, it's linked to death. But they don't tell you who are who are these people who are oversleeping? You know, are they people who are, you know, their bodies are battling this disease and they need the rest because that's when the body repairs and that's when we're able to fight. You know, when you're sick, when if you have the flu, what do you do? You, uh, last time I was really sick, I think I stayed, spent almost the whole day in bed sleeping off and on and drinking tea. And I don't think that was, you know, increasing my mortality. I think it was allowing me to get better more quickly. Yeah, exactly. So that was an interesting little just note like, oh yeah. I mean, cause part of, I think that was towards the end of the book. It's like, okay, let's talk about some of the myths around sleep. What have, what have you heard? And uh, we live in a really interesting time from my perspective where there is a lot of fake news and there is a lot of just gross misinterpretation of what you might consider a quote unquote fact. Mm -hmm. 
And if you don't believe me, I think I mentioned this on the last podcast. If you don't believe me, switch on the news tonight, watch the news on Fox, and then watch on MSNBC. It's the same news, completely different conclusion, right? So you take a study and people say, oh, well, obviously people in this study that slept too much were dying. It's like, okay, but that's not the, that's not actually the story. I mean, maybe they are. Maybe their body's really trying to survive and they're allowing, you know, the sleep is beneficial. Let's talk about why is sleep so hard for people to get? I can almost guarantee the average person listening has a hard time getting eight hours of sleep, or maybe they don't think they need eight hours of sleep, um, which we will tell them they do. So what's why is it so hard? I think constant electrical light. We're bombarded by lights, um, which shut down our melatonin. Um, we also, I think, uh, keeping a regular temperature, uh, 70 to 72, um, or not having the dips, the cool nights, that uh, makes it more difficult for people to sleep. Caffeine, I think, is one of the largest ones. We are a caffeinated society. Um, I drive by Wake Up Call, and all day long, there's a line. Even when I drive home for work, still cars lined up. Caffeine, six-hour half-life, which means after you drink that cup of coffee, six hours later, you still have 50% of that ca caffeine in your system that still we need to get out. So if we have our co coffee at noon, that's six p oh, that's like uh, another 12 hours before the caffeine's completely gone. Um, that will definitely interfere with sleep. Even decaf does still contain caffeine. So if you have a couple cups of decaf in the afternoon, that's like drinking an entire cup. Alcohol is another um, problem for sleep. Uh, people think, believe, uh, who uh, usually have a nightcap, that the alcohol helps them sleep. It's a it's a necessary component for sleep. But repeated studies show that it uh, is a depressant to the central nervous system, and it actually allows sedation, but it's not actually helping people sleep. It also causes more fragmentation of sleep. Uh, an interesting fact is alcohol is the most powerful suppressor of REM sleep that is known. That's that's significant. That's a big deal. And that so REM sleep again is not quite deep sleep. It's different, but that's when you dream. That's with the dreaming. And there's a whole entire gigantic section in the book about why do we dream? Right. What's the point of dreaming? Which I don't know. If we, I don't think we want to get into it right now. Right. But let's just say that every every cycle of your sleep is important. Um, and rapid eye movement sleep is extremely important, especially for creative thinking. Yeah. I, also about caffeine, what I found was really interesting is, you know, how does caffeine work? It helps us where, you know, it helps us feel awake. The way it's working is it, it's actually um, binding to the adenosine receptors so we don't feel that sleep pressure. However, the adenosine still is increasing. So, for example, let's say I decide that I'm not going to sleep tonight and I uh, stay up all night, maybe have a couple, a couple of cups of coffee. During the tomorrow, I might feel okay, be a little sleepy, but I'll feel okay because my cortisol is high through the day. And then that next night, my adenosine is twice as high and I should have an overwhelming sleep pressure. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the way that works. And that was the kind of the caffeine crash too. Yes. It's like, um, so caffeine in and of itself is a stimulant. So it will make you feel more alert. But like you said, it's also blocking your body's ability to have, um, to bind to the adenosine. Right, to feel that sleep pressure. Exactly. So the, the adenosine is still there. It's just circulating, circulating. Mm -hmm. And as soon as that caffeine starts to really go away, let's say probably from hours like six to eight, 
you're going to feel tired almost immediately because all of a sudden there's tons of this hormone floating around and all of a sudden it's just flooding your receptors. And so all of a sudden you feel horrible. And like you said, you could pull an all-nighter by doing some caffeine. And if you get to the point where your circadian rhythm and your cortisol are now ramping back up, right. you actually will feel okay. Yep. They call it like getting your second wind. Yep, that's so the second wind. at like three or four in the morning when you're pulling an all-nighter in college, you're like, okay, yep. actually I'm okay. I slept through it. But as soon as that, you know, the caffeine wears off and as soon as your rhythm and your cortisol start to drop, now you're ready to fall asleep at, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon. You probably need it. (laughs) Yeah. But so the big thing, I think, like you said, for a lot of people in our society, and um, it's funny, I actually have several friends in England too, and they always have their afternoon tea. And I'm like, that just seems like maybe someone should have stopped that a few centuries ago. Because well, they drink know. strong tea in England, don't <laughs> they? They? Do. they probably do. Like no. that's always been my impression. Like this is strong black tea. You could stick your fork in it and it stands up, depending on where you live. So I don't know. Maybe they just like to stay up late in England. Maybe. But not good for us Americans, I guess, huh? Probably not. Yeah. We need our sleep. <laughs> yeah. The book talks about those five factors. So the first one was the constant light, particularly the LED light. Right. But, you know, we have light everywhere, you know, light at home, light out, out around town. The brighter the lights later in the day, that's that's really the problem. Yeah. So light during the day is actually a good thing because mm-hmm. it's telling your brain that it's it's daytime. Yeah. But then at night, like we were talking about earlier, without the absence of light, the melatonin won't be released. So you won't be able to. So if you have a, trouble initiating sleep, which again is the melatonin release, um, that could be a really beneficial tip for you, which... I'll just put it out there now is like get rid of the light earlier as soon as the sun goes down. I like to keep the bedroom pretty dim. We have a bedside table that I like to turn on and then we have a salt lamp. I like the glow of the salt lamp and I'll have both of those on and I'll try to keep all the other lights off in the bedroom. So it's really a pretty dim room. I feel like it's much better for the, you know, release of melatonin. So that was the, the light was number one, the temperature you mentioned. And that's a fascinating one to me too, because, you know, most of us, especially if we're up at night, we want to stay warm. But what our body wants to do to initiate sleep is it wants to cool us off, right? Yeah, there's a two to three degree temperature drop, uh, ideally, of our body that allows us to fall asleep more quickly. Yeah. So some people who have a hard time um, falling asleep, I like to do this just because I think um, evening bathing is one of the true luxuries in modern life, is taking a hot bath or a warm shower, getting nice and warm. And then once you get out of that hot water environment, you're going to be about 10 degrees, you know, cooler than this hot bath. Or I, I don't know, maybe I like scalding baths. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what that'll do is that'll, that's definitely within that two degree, two to three degree drop, and it'll be much easier to drop off. Yeah, that was an interesting tip because like, why would you take a warm bath if you're trying to cool off? But like they said, it's like basically with a warm bath or shower, you're opening up all of your blood vessels. So when you get out, your body can very easily regulate its temperature and drop it quickly, which was kind of fascinating. Get a hot shower to cool off. It's like, okay, cool. Well, that's my favorite thing is that luxury. (laughs) Yeah. And then in the morning, you could do the exact opposite, right? Mm -hmm. You could do your cold shower to wake yourself up and send all that blood to your core. And ironically, I feel warmer after a cold shower. I think it's kind of the same thing. Your body just... I think it's actually uh, in hydrotherapy, you usually use cold water. Cold water is very healing. Yeah. So that was the second one. Um, Let your temperature drop. The third one, like we've mentioned several times now, is caffeine. 
Um, I don't think we're telling anyone to stop consuming caffeine because everyone would turn off the podcast immediately. And both you and I drink coffee. We like coffee. We like coffee. We're Americans. I know. <laughs> but at the very least, maybe try to get your caffeine in by 10 o'clock. Yeah, 10, you know? yeah, 10 a.m. Yep. Or um, earlier. We mentioned alcohol, which we might talk about a little more in just a minute. Um, the fifth one then, like you mentioned, was the time card. Right. So basically kind of what you said already, but do you want to expand on well, that at all? you know, um, you got to be at work at a certain time. You got to leave at a certain time. It, you know, it doesn't allow that flexibility to get that sleep in case you had a hard time falling asleep the night prior. Yeah. And one of the things that I think about too with work, um, which they don't really mention in the book, although you're talking about cortisol and levels of stress hormones and things like that, I think potentially, I think for a lot of people, work is just too long and too stressful, I think sometimes I too. I think that's very true. I think, I don't believe Americans, us in this country, I think we tend to be workaholics. We don't take our vacation. If you look at Europe and other countries, you know, they get what, four to six weeks paid vacation. There are numerous books written about how the brain is really active uh, for about four to six hours. And then you kind of, you're, you're, uh, efficiency kind of peters off and your focus kind of peters off. So during an eight hour workday, how focused are we? How productive are we? You know, it, uh, are we more productive if we work six hours? Can we get the same amount of work done? But then we have the two hours to maybe get our walk in, get our exercise. You know, that's extra two hours of sleep for some people. And if they're getting six, that'll pull them up to their eight. So um, I don't see that being changed, but I have a strong hope that that would be changed. I don't believe cult corporate culture uh, smiles softly on that. And I, the interesting thing too, though, is that it is more of a cultural thing than anything. It the, is the reason that we work thing. so much. It's not, it's yeah. not actually based on what I would consider an outcome. So yeah. if you're in the corporate world and you have to produce a certain outcome that generates money for your company, I mean, if they did the research, which they are doing more research from what I understand, is that a lot of people are actually more productive in a 32-hour week than they are in a 40-hour week. That's true. I believe there are some companies, um, probably more progressive companies, who are shifting that way because they want that work-life balance and their goal is that a certain product and not time. It's less time-based, more product-based. Yeah. And obviously it doesn't work in every work environment. You know, if you're a, if you're a receptionist at the PT clinic, like I, I can't obviously just not have you sitting at the desk and saying hi to people. But I think a lot of times what I, what I've encouraged people to do. And actually on the last episode that I did solo is say, why don't you, you, the listener take, you know, take um, responsibility for your health. And if you really feel like in order for you to improve your sleep and to get the necessary time in that you want to exercise and that you want to socialize, you know, go out and connect with people and do things and, and connect with your like-minded people, that's all going to help your hormone levels and your stress levels. Um, and it's going to give you the opportunity to not be so busy. You know, maybe you make it work and you say, well, I'm going to get paid less probably in a lot of jobs, but I'll be healthier. Right. And a some of my favorite activities, you know, that are really important for um, managing stress are free. Walking is free. You know, there uh, yoga is not free, but if you have a, if you're already paying for a gym and they have a yoga class, that's basically free. It's just the time. Uh, cycling, once you have a bicycle, is free. Yeah, even in the snow. And I believe that <laughs> the pools around here in the summer, I believe they got rid of the fee, so that's now free. They did it last that might year. Be. Yeah. 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 Like you said, I don't think even for a lot of people, I don't think cost is necessarily the barrier. It's time. 
It is time. Where but, am I going to find the time? To but do? you had mentioned, you know, if you cut back, yeah. you get paid less and there are free things you can do uh, with that time. Totally. You spend time with your spouse. I know. Right? Hon, if you're listening, that's you. <laughs> Quality time. <laughs> yep. I love it. More yeah. snowboarding, stuff like that. We have another ugly topic to talk about. So we've already talked about how caffeine, um, you know, binds to those adenosine receptors and causes trouble. Um, we've kind of alluded to alcohol, but a lot of even, I think, medical professionals are now saying that drinking moderate amounts of alcohol is actually good for you. But if you look at the sleep research, that's completely inaccurate um, in terms of is alcohol good for you to sleep? Yeah, alcohol is a tricky one. Um, also, you know, how much bias is there in research too? You know, we are humans and we do have biases. Um, there is an article out um, written by a medical doctor, Dr. Lawford Canahan. It was, um, I found it on Medium and she talked about why you should rethink alcohol in moderation. Because previously all the studies talked about, oh, alcohol in moderation is fine. And what she's saying is actually, you know, maybe it's it's not fine. You know, it's terrible for sleep, but it is um, associated with all-cause death. Um, and that's alcohol consumption among people who drank five drinks a week or less. But the average person, if you said, well, how much do you drink? And they said, well, I drink two drinks a night. They would, they would probably consider that in their in their mind, they would probably consider that moderate. They would. And that that by this definition is not moderate. Or even one drink every night, because that's not five drinks or less, now you're no longer moderate either. Yeah, now you're into like, and when they actually do the research, they're saying, okay, you're now, if you drink one drink a night, you're actually probably considered a heavy drinker, let alone if you drink two, three and, you know, the problem with alcohol is, you know, they have these studies that say, oh, it's terrible, don't do it. And then they have these studies, ah, actually, you know, it's not so terrible. So I think that's, I think that's going to be debated, honestly, probably till the end of time. Yeah. I think from the sleep perspective, though, it, it's not a, it's not debated at all. No, it's, it's not. It's open and close um, in terms of what alcohol actually does to your brain while you sleep and how people feel with it. And so that's interesting, but I guess it's just something to consider if you're, if you're looking at improving your sleep. Yeah, you know, uh, and the studies that do talk about alcohol, they are talking about moderate, and that moderate uh, limit is five drinks a week or less. That is not two drinks every night or one drink every night. That's five or less. Yep, yep. Especially if you ski or snowboard. I know. I was mentioning that to you. It's just, and again, it's just, it's just part of the culture. You go up to the mountain, and you, you know, you're out in nature, and there's so many good things, and it's like, all right, let's get a drink. Yep. Like, okay, I guess. Of course. Might as well. Everyone else is doing it. Seems fun. So moving on to something even more sinister, because we're in the we're in the part of the show where we're scaring people. Um, let's talk about sleeping pills. So sleeping pills, sleeping pills are sedative hypnotics, and a lot of people need them. I don't quite have the number, but it's quite a few. Um, the stats are pretty scary with these. Um, with only half a pill to eighteen pills per year or two, that increases uh, your risk of death by three point six times. That's huge. Um, for people who are more uh, heavy users of sedative hypnotics or uh, sleeping pills, that's one hundred thirty-two pills per year. That's not even that's not even a pill every night. And that increases risk of death by 5.3 times. Uh, those are kind of scary numbers. People are, um, risk of death are falls, cancer, stroke, heart disease, to name a few. And what these sedative hypnotics do is they 
make you feel asleep, but you're lacking the deepest brainwave. So you're not getting the quality of sleep that uh, the body needs. I thought that was interesting. I mean, the the infographic they have on that, where again, if you take 18 pills or less a year, that was like the, the lowest end yep. group. So even if you take one pill a year over the next two and a half years, which is kind of a weird metric they use, but is what it is, you're 3.6 times more likely yeah, to die. It's huge. And then you say, well, what's killing these people? And it's mm. pretty much anything. Yeah. It's um, more car accidents was a big yeah. one. Yeah, it's just all-cause mortality. Um, with some of the sedative hypnotics like Ambien, people will get in the car. They will um, drive the walk. They'll go places. Um, there was one extreme example in the book where there was actually a murder committed um, under the use of hip, uh, sedative hypnotics. Um, that, but, was, that was a weird one. Yeah. That was a weird one. But people don't um, – they're not conscious, but they can – uh, one of the guys even dro- drove, I think, 14 miles asleep um, with a sleeping pill. So w- with those types of uh, behaviors, uh, there's probably a higher risk of death. With the sleeping pills, um, they're also physically addictive. Um, and people think they slept subjectively. They're like, oh, I, I finally slept with my sleeping pill. However, objectively, when you look at their sleep um, under, uh, you know, labs and uh, uh, electronics, you know, watching kind of what the body's doing, objectively, it, it's very poor quality sleep and really not that much. Yeah. No, very little benefit. And that led to kind of a vicious cycle, too, because, again, subjectively, they're like, wow, I was asleep. It's like, well, yes, you were asleep. You were not awake. Right. But you were not actually sleeping. You were sedated. Correct. So your brain was yeah. just kind of laying there. It wasn't doing its thing. It wasn't filtering through memories. It wasn't doing anything worthwhile. It wasn't cleansing itself, mm-hmm. which we mentioned earlier with the with the glymphatic system, which we'll dive into here in a yep. minute. It wasn't doing anything. Um, and that leads to a whole host of things. Um, of course, one of those ones was the vicious cycle where actually you think you slept, but you wake up and you're not feeling very rested. You right. think you slept, so you feel better. I think cognitively, you just say, wow, I slept, great. But you're still not alert, so you're more likely to drink more higher levels of caffeine throughout the day, which consequently is going to make it harder for you to fall asleep. Yes. So the drugs in and of themselves are heavily addicting, but now you really do need them because if we take them away from you, you're really in trouble. Right. Because you will not fall asleep without them now. Right. Now it's kind of a sticky, sticky spiral. Yeah. And the one that I actually thought was really interesting because we're talking about um, people who take Ambien um, or the other Restoral was the other one, or Restoral or something like that, which I didn't know that one. Um, but they've done, it said in the book, 15 studies on this, 15 like well-documented studies about how sleeping pills essentially kill you. And it's still on the market. No gigantic warnings. I could, I could almost guarantee you if you asked your family doctor, they had no idea these studies were even performed. And the one that really got my attention was that people taking sleeping pills, uh, and this was Ambien, and it, I don't know if it says how many pills they were taking, um, but 30 to 40% more likely to develop cancer within that period. And the other one, the uh, Restoril, 60% increased risk of cancer from a sleeping pill. That just blew my mind. Yeah, that's pretty significant. And I had no idea that, I mean, the other ones kind of make sense, I guess, just in terms of well, the lack of sleep, but it's just crazy. Well, you know, uh, melatonin is actually used quite a bit um, holistically. 
higher levels of melatonin, like 10 to 20 milligrams, are used by a lot of my colleagues and myself included when people actually have cancer. There's something anti you know, very helpful to the body about melatonin. So if they're melatonin deficient on a sleeping pill, they're not getting the benefits of the glymphatic, you know, cleanse of the pulsatile motion of the lymphatic system cleaning the brain, and you're probably not having the melatonin that you need. And obviously, I think for most folks, if you said, look, we think you need some help, what do you want to start with? You want to, you want to try melatonin first, you know, your natural sleep hormone? Or do you want to try Ambien first? It's like, that to me is kind of a no-brainer yeah, um, and, just to, just as a starting point for some people. And, you know, melatonin is tricky to dose too. Um, a lot of people, there are a lot of three milligram tablets out there. Sometimes that's way too high for people. Like they'll feel groggy and kind of terrible the next morning. Um, trying to find a half or one milligram if you're going to try this. Of course, talk to your physician. Um <laughs> That's a better dose to start with and then kind of uh, ramping up instead of just going for that three or that six. Yeah. 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 But obviously there are other options, which we'll talk about options. We'll get, we'll get a little more cheery here in just a few minutes, but options that can help you improve your sleep before you go on to um, trying something a little bit more risky, like a pharmaceutical. Um, before we do that though, I just wanted to mention, both of us have mentioned the glymphatic system a little bit and some of the links with chronic diseases um, like dementia and Alzheimer's. Do you want to, again, just maybe explain it a little more in detail? What is the glymphatic system and what's happening during sleep? So so all the prior anatomy and physiology textbooks showed the lymphatic system ending at the head, like it just ended. It was dead end. And uh, only a couple years ago or uh, maybe five years ago did researchers actually discover, first in rats, of course, that the lymphatic system doesn't dead end at the neck. It actually extends into the head. And at night, the lymphatic system is very active. And there's a really neat... um, video online of the lymphatics, the glymphatic system, like these pulsatile motions, just cleansing the brain and the glial cells. It's mm-hmm. really, uh, and what it's doing is the lymphatic system uh, is basically cleaning the waste products and, uh, and cleaning out the brain. Which yeah. is really important. It's like never taking, you know, if the our, all of our trash uh, services shut down, the city would be a mess. So we we want this kind of cleansing system to occur ideally nightly. Yeah, I like that um, illustration of the the glymphatic system. Just as like like you said, it's the garbage system. It's cleaning things up at night because, like you said, the brain is working during the day. It has waste products. Oh yeah. And um, you know, if you look at ideally, you've got eight hours of sleep for this system to work, get, you know, cleanse everything, get all these garbage out of there. But if you're only giving it six hours or seven hours, which actually from a lot of the studies in the book, even going from eight hours as ideal down to seven, there was significant changes to your health just from one hour a night. Yeah, and they, uh, the book talks about something that we all take part in, daylight saving. And when, when we lose that hour, it's just an hour, when we lose that hour of sleep, uh, heart attacks uh, increase the next day. Whereas in the spring or in the uh, fall, when we gain that hour of sleep, uh, heart attacks actually decrease. So allowing that extra hour of sleep is more significant than we all feel like it is. And that's one hour, it's one, one hour, night. One night. That's one hour, like period. It is. Most people are losing an hour, two, three every night. 
I mean, you can just imagine, um, you know, one of the more interesting ones too, as you mentioned, daylight savings was people getting into car accidents, mm, Yep. you know, when they spring forward and lose mm-hmm. an hour, the amount of car accidents was like, it was like three or four times higher. It was yeah, crazy. I believe it. And then when you gain the hour and you fall back, the amount of car accidents just like went barely anywhere, you mm-hmm. know, down to zero. And they talked about um, like these long haul truck drivers yeah. and how when they are sleep deprived, they're like five times more likely to get in a fatal car accident. And it's like, well, name one that isn't sleep deprived and, you know, we'll give them a medal. I know. But it's just it like, wow, like problem. it's pretty crazy. So yeah, so that glymphatic system is cleansing your brain, which um, the most common neurological type thing you'll hear mentioned then will be Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. dementia, which is basically just, I think most people would look at that as a degenerative brain disease. Your brain is kind of wasting away in certain areas um, and how oftentimes that's linked to poor sleep. It is linked to poor sleep. Um, I saw somewhere, I can't remember exactly where it was, but um, there was a researcher and he was talking about how in the future, because right now, you know, we have to guess what type of dementia it is. You don't, you're not sure if it's Alzheimer's until after a biopsy, which we didn't generally don't do on a living person, um, a brain biopsy for dementias. The uh, changes in their sleep behavior someday uh, might be able to diagnose which type of dementia it is, mm-hmm. yeah. which is fascinating to me. The other argument too, though, is is the old chicken or the egg. I know. You know? Um, people with Parkinson's, people with dementia, typically have a horrible time sleeping. Now, is that a, is that a side effect of the disease, or was the horrible sleep the cause of the disease, or maybe a mix? Maybe I I believe it's probably a mix, but I believe uh, they are linked. But statistically speaking, if you get more sleep, your chances of getting these diseases is right. drastically reduced. Getting dementia decreases with improved sleep. Yeah, and then on the same token. If you get dementia, your chances of getting a good night's sleep are going downhill right. pretty quickly. Yeah, it's pretty. Um, especially when you start introducing other pharmaceuticals that can affect the way um, that you sleep. I mean, things like dopamine and things like right. that. Right. So on the subject of what affects sleep as well, sometimes pharmaceuticals alone do. A lot of pharmaceuticals contain caffeine and we don't even think about it. Hmm. Um, a lot of the headache uh, like Excedrin, Motrin, all the uh, migraine headaches usually have caffeine in it because caffeine honestly helps work. It gets rid of a headache, yeah. <laughs> but it might prevent your next night of sleep too. It also triggers your next one though. I did. For a lot tri- of people. Yes, it does. It, it can, <laughs> you can get rebound headaches. Okay. So I think we've doom and gloom people enough. Um, hopefully if you've listened this far, um, you'll agree that the topic is important and maybe uh, slightly fascinating. So let's say um, people out there in... It's not, I was going to say radio land. This isn't a radio, I guess, uh, audio land. Um, so what are some, what are some easy ways they can start, uh, improving their sleep? And I want to preface this with, with, I think the average person who wants to improve their sleep, um, is a very frustrating topic for people. So obviously we're not trying to make light of it or make it sound like it's, it's easy and it's a no brainer. Um, so I guess everyone who's listening, take that with a just into consideration that I think you and I understand that this isn't an easy topic to improve. But if if you want to improve it, where do you start? So the very first thing I do is if you think you have sleep apnea or if someone tells you that you snore or stop breathing at night, 
you know, not sleeping kills people. Sleep apnea kills people. I strongly recommend get, have, seeing a doctor um, and having a sleep study test. There are home sleep study tests that are done. Now, there are some that you can order by yourself online. I think it's less than $200 and they ship it to your house. Uh, it's read by a sleep doctor and, you know, get the sleep CPAP. The CPAP, you know, I know People sometimes don't like wearing it, but the CPAP makes a big difference. If you can't breathe at night, you're not going to sleep. You're going to be tired all day. The second, I believe, uh, is light manipulation. Um, what that means is, you know, get your sun in the morning, get your blue light in the morning, install blue light blockers on your iPad, on your cell phone, on your computer. A lot of cell phones have blue light blockers already built in that you can turn on. There are blue light glasses that you can buy online for the hardest core of uh, people out there who want to wear their blue light blockers all the time, or especially in the evening. And then at home, if you're having a hard time sleeping, I'd I wouldn't have bright lights at home. I'd get the uh, lower spectrum bulbs and not LED ones, and I'd have them below uh, height level. So not the overhead lights, but the more uh, table lamps. And then I would think about doing a, a warm shower, warm bath before bed. Make sure you're hydrated. Um, some people actually need a couple carbs before going to sleep. Some people, some if there are adrenal issues. So um, that doesn't mean sugar and desserts. That means you know maybe a half a sweet potato or something, half a banana. Um, if you're still really struggling with sleep. I encourage you to see a doctor, probably a functional medical doctor or a functional naturopath, uh, to, to look at cortisol salivary testing. Cause if your cortisol is sky high, especially at night, you're going to have a really hard time sleeping. Um, melatonin is a consideration. Um, people who are really stressed, I'd recommend uh, meditation, you know, getting in a walk, um, maybe some yoga, uh, reading, some sort of, uh, Activity that is helpful for managing stress. Television does not manage stress. We all feel like it does because we can sit there and kind of watch. But uh, it's it's studies show that stress management is an active activity, and television does not fulfill that need. That's a good way to put it. <clears throat> I think yeah. stress management is an active activity. It is. Stress management, you know, deep breathing, walking, yoga, meditation, not um, not just watching TV. Um, melatonin. Melatonin is always something to talk to your doctor about. There's some other wonderful, wonderful uh, supplements out there. Um, I urge you to talk to your doctor about these because some of them will interact with medications. Um, 5-HTP is one that will interact with medications but can help some people. L-theanine is one of my favorites for stress. Same with uh, GABA. GABA is a, an amino acid, um, not a medication. Not gabapentin. Not gabapentin. GABA is not <laughs> gabapentin. Um, and then uh, I think those are my probably my favorites. Awesome. So I'll just recap then, just in case people want to uh, hear the hear the list over again. So you mentioned I, I didn't think about that one. The sleep apnea is a is a good place to start if you think that you're having uh, difficulty breathing at night. I mean, cross off the easy ones off your list. And I think when you and I were talking before the show, we were just saying um, 
what's the easiest way to get going? Because ultimately it can really be difficult to have a positive impact on your sleep. Oh, and then about sleep apnea, you know, sleep apnea, they, they, the, the, one of the questions is, are you obese? You know, you can be a slim person and the palate might be too narrow and you can still have sleep apnea. So um, I, I urge people to get that tested. Okay. So ask your, ask your uh, partner if you're you know, if you're uh, waking up, because a lot of times with sleep apnea, they wake up suddenly because they're they're suffocating. Basically, they're not breathing, but they don't remember it. Right. But right. their partner remembers it because they say, hey, you kept me up all last night. Or there's really loud snoring mm-hmm. all night long. Cool. So check that out. Um, like you said, uh, manipulate the light if you can. So, I mean, we talked about the importance of light and melatonin, especially if you have a hard time initiating sleep. That's where the light's going to really help you. Right. And then forgo the coffee. Forgo the coffee after 10 a.m. Just, you know, get tea, um, an herbal tea maybe, or a rooibos tea without any caffeine. They make some nice rooibos uh, chai teas. Um, For people who really have trouble, uh, I urge people to get some, you know, when you exercise, you spend the day out on the slopes or you, you know, sign up for a 5K or you do Bloomsday, you know. After a hard workout, after working our muscles, you do need rest and you will feel more tired. So think about adopting a small exercise routine if if you really struggle. And then hydration. If you're going to bed dehydrated, um, that I believe that might impact your sleep too. And then you mentioned the the warm shower or bath. Um, the other thing is if you're if you're keeping your ambient temperature at home, like at 70, 72, um, I think especially during the winter where your body is expecting it to be a little cooler, consider lowering that a few degrees, especially while you're sleeping. I think the recommended temperature is 65 degrees for sleep. Yeah. And they also mentioned though, if you're used to being 72 while you sleep, just start with three right. degrees or so. Um, hopefully people aren't sleeping that warm, but you never know. Um, but again, these are easy things. They don't cost necessarily any money. Um, if you and turn down the temperature, that'll save you money. Exactly. It'll save you. That's a good point. And then you can afford yoga. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but um, but I, I think too, the approach that I think is valuable for folks is if you can take like five of these tips that are pretty like easy, you could do them today, that might do some good for you and give you a little confidence and a little bit of hope that you can improve it. Whereas some of the, some of the techniques, you know, ultimately if you're trying to reduce your alcohol, like we've talked about, that might be a hard one to start with, but it might be something to move towards as you feel like you're more in control. And every day is a, you know, a new, a new day. Sometimes we have perfectionists and the perfectionist mindset is, oh, I failed today. I guess I'll try next week or I'll try tomorrow. You know, you can try the next hour. Like you don't, there's no set time to try again. Um, also, if you're really struggling, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, some sort of counseling, EMDR, uh, acupuncture, all of those might be worth exploring. And then seeing a sleep doctor, I should probably find more in town, but uh, a sleep doctor that that's what they do is monitor sleep, look at sleep. Um, that might be a, a goal too. Yeah. Well, obviously they can come talk to you, right? They can talk to me. Yeah. Yep. I think sometimes you just need someone to steer the ship and who said, look, I understand this hopefully more than you do. And I can, I've had experience with helping people. That always gives people a little confidence, right? That's how we do it at the, at the PT clinic too. It's like, well, we see people with this condition all the time and here's how they typically do. And people, you know, people tend to think it'll work then. 
Right. Which it does. Right. And then, you know, some people, you know, if life has been pretty stressful, which I think most people fit in that boat, um, cortisol salivary testing might be worth it because if your cortisol is high at night, you're going to have a hard time sleeping. I typically hear about cortisol or I have in the past with weight loss, right? So you see all these weight loss pills that are um, like cortisol causes you to gain weight. Cortisol, you know, it's a beautiful thing. It, it, we die without it. There are people, you know, who don't make cortisol and they have to take cortisol every day or they will die. However, if you see people who have needed, you know, prednisone at high doses uh, and they've had to do it for a long period of time, so you'll see that they're starting to get around face and maybe they call it the buffalo hump, unfortunately, with a hump of um, adipose on the back and then the uh, abdominal weight gain. And that is because that's what cortisol does in really high doses. It starts to store fat. But again, I think of the cortisol as the stress hormone that if you if you have too much of it, then it's going to cause you to, it's going to affect your sleep. And- it affects sleep and weight gain and uh, blood sugar levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we talked, to, I mean- you mentioned this very early on that um, the fight or flight, and um, we've talked about this on other podcast episodes too, where you have the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. And essentially, if your sympathetic nervous system, your fight or flight is too high, you're just constantly in this state of stress. And and obviously, I think most people can agree, when you want to get a good night's sleep, if you go to bed feeling relaxed and you have activated your parasympathetic system, which basically is signaling to your brain and body that it's okay, now is rest and recovery time. Like you've gotta be able to switch from you know, sympathetic to parasympathetic. And so you talk about, okay, well, what are other, you know, have your cortisol levels checked. Um, regular exercise is gonna help with those things. Uh, doing an activity that you enjoy. Uh, outdoor time is gonna affect some of those things. And then breathing, you know, the vagus nerve travels down to our heart and um, affects our breathing as well. And a lot of people breathe with their upper chest, like they're not deep breaths. So I wanna remind people again that, you know, real deep breathing is diaphragmatic breathing. It's from the diaphragm under the lungs. It's the Buddha belly of babies. You know, you watch a baby breathe and their little bellies come out and they retract back. So belly breathing is therapeutic. And uh, yoga incorporates a lot of that. I'm no expert on yoga, although we have yoga through the clinic now. Um, It's been amazing though, to get some of the feedback from people that have gone to yoga classes recently and very minimal movement. Because a lot of people that we're working with who are, who are recommending yoga, um, they're not, they're in their 50s, 60s, 70s. They have injuries, they have nerve pain, they have total joint replacements. So we're not talking like extreme yoga. No. Like we're not talking about the 25-year-old in spandex. Um, this is like very basic yoga, but at the core of it is a lot of breath work. And so I'll get these patients who I will refer over to yoga and I'll actually think they're gonna feel worse because it's movement, mm-hmm. but they say, I feel so much better. And I talked to the the yoga therapist. He said, well, so much of this breathing is like you said, the vagal nerve, and it's calming down an overactive um, nervous system, mm-hmm. um, which goes hand in hand with your immune system, and in my pain opinion. Too. And their pain levels are improved. And I'm thinking, wow, you just did an hour long class, which I didn't think you could do in the first place, and mm-hmm. you feel better. Mm-hmm. without the rebound of like, oh, I feel better now, but in two hours I'm gonna mm-hmm. crash and every muscle is gonna be killing me. Um, so very fascinating. And I have to admit, like I'm not a yoga person. Like yoga isn't, I've never even tried it. Um, I like running around. Like I like a little more <laughs> strenuous funny. physical okay. activity. Yeah. I like chasing a little orange ball and trying to throw it through a hoop. Um, but it's just like, I think I need to open my mind a little bit to the fact that yoga may not be fulfilling the same need for me as basketball, 
but it might be fulfilling a different need for breathing and, you know, relaxation. So we'll see. One of these days will get me on a yoga yeah. class and it'll be hilarious and <laughs> yoga is one of those. My very first time I tried yoga, honestly, I was like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. This is really hard just to stand there and breathe. And and then um, I forced myself and and it grows on you. you know, by the end, you like it pretty well. Yeah. But it, it, I'm a slow learner. It took me a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the nice thing about yoga, too. I don't think anyone's in a hurry. Nope. You know, no yoga one's in a hurry. is like, be, and that's meditation, too, right? Just the fact of slowing everything down and being present in the moment. I mean, a lot of basic meditation is simply sit down and just try to relax your mind. Don't focus on any given thing except maybe your breathing pattern mm-hmm. and just kind of just chill out a little bit. And, and I like to remind people that yoga is not, you know, uh, or it shouldn't be, it's not a competitive activity. It's for you. You go at your own pace. If you can't do something, you do the, uh, you know, you you don't, uh, you know, usually a, a yoga instructor, instructor will give, you know, the, the, for the beginner and the medium and the, uh, more advanced poses. And you don't push yourself to the advanced if you're a beginner. Yeah. You stay in the beginner. It's not a competition. It doesn't matter that the person next to you can wrap, you know, can wrap their leg around their head or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think maybe that's what's held me back is I'm a competitive person. It's maybe. like, you don't win at yoga. You don't. Um, even if you were good at yoga, you still didn't win anything you don't. <laughs> product of our environment, you yeah. know, the, the positive feedback that I was looking for. But I think that's why they call it like with meditation and yoga, it's mm-hmm. a practice. It's a practice. It's something you do on a regular basis. You don't ever, I mean, you're, you're looking for maybe mastery at some point, but even then it doesn't mean you stop. You it, just and it's practicing. different every day. If you're injured, you know, you don't push as far. You, you go with what the body can do. Well, cool. Well, hopefully between all those tips, um, people listening are finding some value there. I think at the end of the day, um, just deciding that you're going to, you're going to try to do something to improve your sleep will actually improve your sleep. Um, I think it's just a matter, you mentioned the perfectionist mentality. If you're perfectionist, um, it's going to be, it's going to be difficult until you can get rid of that belief that you have to be good at it. I think just the fact to say, look, I'm just going to try and see where this takes me. And at the very least, it'll be a positive thing because I am going to exercise more. That's mm-hmm. great. I am going to get outside more. That's yeah. great. And on exercise, we in this country, people, it's like all or nothing. It's an hour or not at all, or half an hour or not at all. You know, exercise can be, you know, you know, how long does it take to walk a mile or, or jog a mile? Like, you know, if it's seven to 10 minutes, that's, that's significant. So we, we shouldn't cut ourselves short either. Yeah. Well, that's for me. A lot of times I just walk around the neighborhood by mm-hmm. the clinic because I'm unfortunately spending a lot of time in front of a computer mm-hmm. these days. So I just get outside and walk around. Yep. If it's not too snowy, I'll actually like run in my work yeah. clothes. People think I'm crazy. I think that's normal. I think it's fine. <laughs> one of the receptionists there said, uh, one of my, cause I'm kind of, I'm kind of easy to see yeah. when I run around cause I have a pretty long ponytail these yeah. days. <laughs> if you didn't know that and you're listening, I'm, I have long hair. And so people will like recognize me running around cause I'll have my hair flying. And so one of the receptionists like, yeah, my friend said she saw my boss running down the street. I was like, well, yeah, I was actually, I was going to Starbucks That's funny. as we're talking about caffeine. <laughs> it's like, and then it's like a block away. It's like, well, I was just running. Cause I yeah. mean, there it I was. It feels good to run. It's play. Yeah. It's like, it's yeah. Play. So yeah. the last thing I did, I know we're getting a little long on time, but the last thing I did want to mention is that, uh, um, what can be really important for people too, is just to keep a consistent schedule, mm-hmm. um, day to day to day. I think a lot of us, we get so worn down during the weekend mm-hmm. or during the week. And then on the weekend, it's like, okay, time to let loose. 
maybe we uh, stay out a little later, whatever. But it's really hard, from my understanding, to switch your rhythm that way. Yeah, that's like going through jet lag every four, three to four days. Yeah. So I think potentially for some people looking to improve their sleep, if you can just say, well, what is your schedule? What's your ideal schedule? You go to, I mean, even if you're not getting enough sleep, don't worry about changing that yet. But what is the schedule? Are you going to bed at 11 and waking up at six? Do that on the weekend too. Don't have a different schedule for two days out of the week and then try to, because you're constantly transitioning and you know your hormone levels are trying to figure out what you're doing. Um, jet lag, like you mentioned, of course, is really plays havoc on your sleep. So again, hopefully some of those tips help. So thank you for sharing the show with me today. It was a pleasure and see you at Bloom's Day. Bloom's Day. <laughs> All right. See you at Hoop Fest. <laughs> um, good. Last thing, obviously, uh, we mentioned this is Dr. Donahue. Uh, people want to reach out to you. What should they do? Should they call you, email you? So I recommend calling the office at 509-263-2130. And we have a great acupuncturist. She's actually my sister. She's wonderful. And, um, and then there's me. Yeah. Awesome. So call if you want to learn more. Um, obviously, people can email me from the show, but um, most likely the best I can do is steer you in a direction such as Dr. Donahue. Um, very nice, in, in my opinion, just to talk you up a little bit, to have a primary care who actually um, who sees the integrative approach more like I do, like saying you could give people this level of support with sleep or with chronic pain or with fatigue, um, but you also know that there are cognitive behavioral um, therapists that can help, you know, there's acupuncturists that can help, you know, there are sleep doctors that can help. So if you need to bring more people into, into the community to help someone, you really can. Yeah. It's wonderful. I, I really like being in this, um, you know, kind of functional and, uh, kind of medical world, kind of that middle. Yeah. Yeah. Where you can actually just say, Hey, you need, you need help. We, right. we need help. We need help. Which I think a lot of people in the traditional medical model say like, well, the primary, ship me over to this person to see if that person could help. That didn't work. So they shipped me over to that person that couldn't help, but maybe we need two or three people all in conjunction on the same page, communicating to achieve what we want to achieve. Yeah. Cause so. you, you know, I believe that a lot of things are usually a little bit multifactorial. Yeah. You know, there's, you know, we're pretty resilient beings. Yeah. That's a good point. People can take a lot of Abuse. stress. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can live your whole life sleep deprived. Yeah. You, you'll do it. And you, you can live a decent. Yeah. Statistically speaking, you'll, you're more likely to die sooner. But mm -hmm. again, you, I mean, there's so many people that are just, they're just toughing it out. It's cultural too, mm -hmm. you know, but you know, there's a quality to life that hopefully people are able to uh, access and strive for. I believe. Well, good. Well, thank you again for uh, joining me on the show. I think it's it's fun that you're my first guest of this year. You were my first guest last year. So we'll just have to keep this going. Maybe we'll even bump you up to twice a year. Oh, that'd be so year. kind. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we'll, we'll figure out more stuff to talk about. Um, so again, thank you for joining me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Um, and to the other listeners of the podcast, uh, hopefully this was uh you know, um, educational and, and somewhat, um, easy to follow. If you have other ideas for shows, either for me and Dr. Donahue or topics you want to know more about, certainly reach out to me, uh, by email, which I leave at the bottom of the notes here too. Uh, but that's just Luke, my first name at Gordon physical therapy, all spelled out gordonphysicaltherapy.com. Um, love to get feedback from people and just let, you know, let me know what you like. Let me know what you don't like too. I mean, if you think I'm crazy, uh, that's good to know too. I'll consider it. I may not agree with you, but I'll consider it. Um, and hopefully you are enjoying Spokane, even though it's winter, get outside. 
The snow's great. The snow, embrace the snow. If you live in Spokane, um, no one likes a complainer. This happens every year. Just embrace the snow. I I uh, signed up for the Coeur d'Alene Half Ironman, so we'll see how that goes. So I've started running, and I just love running on packed snow. Be careful. You can fall. I've already fallen once this year, so you don't do that. But, uh, but it's been really beautiful. Yeah. The thing with, I think, running in the snow or walking in the snow is it's so quiet. Um, I mean, because a lot of times there's noise. Oh, I know. It muffles And the everything. snow just like absorbs noise. I know, but it's those downhills cool. sneak up on you and man, they're slick. <laughs> yeah. bring, your, uh, bring your skis. There yeah. you go. All right. Well, again, thank you all for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show and I will talk to you again soon. Thank you for listening to the Stay Healthy Spokane podcast sponsored by Gordon Physical Therapy. To stay connected with the Stay Healthy Spokane community, visit www.stayhealthyspokane.com. And we will see you next time on the Stay Healthy Spokane podcast.